0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command that stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you... I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. To you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. God's word is still speaking to us today through God's word given to us in the Bible. I've been reminded of this over and over again in my ministry. When Bible passages, I know by heart that I learned when I was perhaps some of the uh, children's age out there um, in the sanctuary, when I knew those verses by heart as a kid, and yet as an adult they sound new and different based on what's going on in my life and in the world. Today's reading, The Temptation of Jesus in the Desert, according to the Gospel of Luke, Sounded different this week, based on everything that's going on in the world. Right before today's reading, Jesus has just been baptized, the heavens open, and we hear a voice saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, typically we think we jump straight From that into the temptation, which action-wise we do, but Luke does include an important interlude, the genealogy of Jesus, moving from Joseph all the way back to Adam, who was, interestingly enough, listed as the Son of God, too. Then we pick up with today's action. We are told that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 40 days is an echo of the 40 days of rain that Noah and those on the ark endured and the 40 years that God's people wandered around in the wilderness before reaching the promised land because they did not trust God. We are told that he ate nothing during those days, and obviously he's hungry after all of this. Then enter the devil. Now I know there are lots of different beliefs about the devil out there currently. There are some who think of the red pitchfork wielding horn and tail devil who's out there to get us. And those who think these beliefs are antiquated and it's just a superstitious personification of a character who doesn't really exist. Wherever you happen to fall on the spectrum, it is important to note that Luke does include the devil but without a physical description. And the temptations that are presented to Jesus are very real and still very much apply to all of us here today. The first temptation or challenge the devil puts in front of Jesus is the most obvious one. Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for a long time. So the devil looks to take advantage of this. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Whether you call this malevolent figure the devil or go with the more amorphous evil, the devil is clever. The devil is both seeking to make Jesus doubt his status, son of God, if, if you are the son of God, and get Jesus to give into his hunger, to use his power for purely selfish reasons. To believe he is owed this one little thing of bread. I always find it a bit ironic that Lent is a season of fasting. The 40-ish days of Lent are partially meant to reflect the 40 days Jesus spent in the desert being tempted. And there are historic church traditions around fasting that can be beautiful. Fasting, at its best, is supposed to remind us of how much we need God. Every time your tummy rubbles, for instance, if you're giving up food of some sort, remember how Jesus did what you cannot. Every time you think of reaching for whatever it is that you happen to give up, remember that you are a sinner and you need God. This can be a lovely and important reminder. But at its worst, it becomes performative in nature. People posting about how they're taking a break from social media on social media. Seems counterintuitive. People comparing what they're giving up with each other to see who is giving up the most. I have a good friend and I'm not speaking poorly of her or her tradition. She grew up Roman Catholic, is a very faithful Roman Catholic, one that I respect a great deal. One of their traditions is to give up meat on Fridays, posted a picture of her and her family's tradition of doing this, passing along the traditions of giving up meat and having sushi instead. So often we make these things about us instead of about God. In the midst of this, I'm also mindful of the things we're giving up that maybe we didn't sign up for. I've watched the gas prices at the local sheet station just a block from my house creep up, starting by 10, then 20, then 30, and now 40 cents per gallon in the past few days. It wasn't unexpected. We knew this was going to happen with the major sanctions the world has stepped up to put on Russia in order to try and dissuade them from their assault. We are also mindful of all the things that we gave up that we didn't want to as we've tried to navigate this pandemic. It's not lost on me that next Sunday, Sunday, March 13th, marks when the pandemic really hit home for many of us when everything started shutting down in earnest two whole years ago, and how we've tried to restart various aspects of our lives in fits and starts. Even as we may or may not have convinced ourselves that we are following the guidelines and working on these mitigations in order to love and serve our neighbors and each other, there's always that little voice in the back of our head, that grumbles, that resents being made to give things up, that is convinced that we are owed these things. And Jesus responds to this temptation. He does what we cannot. Jesus responds, It is written, one does not live by bread alone. The it is written brings us back, to the word, to scripture, to what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Speaking of a 40 time period of being in the desert, God's people are finally, finally on the threshold of the promised land. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God and God's people are taking the time to re-up the covenant, the promise that God's people will follow God's commandments and God will be faithful to them. They will be faithful to each other. And we are reminded in the whole of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, God humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Manna is bread that literally fell from heaven. God's people woke up every day and it was simply there to feed them. They didn't work for it. They couldn't hoard it. It just happened. It just appeared. It was a physical everyday reminder that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is a reminder that everything comes from God, and that we are not owed anything, but that God gives us everything out of God's abundant mercy and love. It is a test we failed over and over again, thinking we are owed everything. But Jesus, has passed it with flying colors. For the second temptation, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. If there are those of you who might be following along with a scripture reading from today in the bulletin and the Bible, I actually like a different translation of this better, because it's punchier. It makes the devil's point clearer. The devil tells Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and i can give it to anyone i want to so if you worship me it will all be yours if you believe what the devil is saying here it's a gut punch given the current state of the world we are tempted to believe this as we watch corrupt authoritarian leadership try to take over a country by force, arrest protesters from its own country who dare to stand up against injustice, and watch them take aim at civilian targets. It's a narrative that we're tempted to believe as we watched another authoritarian government commit genocide, all while hooting how amazing it is during a contentious and surprisingly joyless Olympics. We are tempted to believe it as we watch our own country reckon with a history of injustice, especially around racial injustice, and watch as things become more and more and more polarized. And this is not to say the devil isn't behind such things. The devil has often been called the father of lies, and with all the disinformation out there, all the doubts and frenzies, all the propaganda and social media smear campaigns, all the shouting on the news networks. Evil is very real, and evil often seeks out power and does all it can to stay in power, escalating the evil until you're asking your people to carry out murder and war and in genocide. The devil or evil wants to win by pure despair here. Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. Here being the world as a whole. It is a temptation that is constantly in our face, and it is hard not to despair. Jesus, however, is up to the task in a way that we are not. Jesus, once again, quotes scripture. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. In other words, there is only one capital G, God, and one capital L, Lord. And it isn't you nor is it any of these kingdoms, nor any of these rulers. Jesus pulls this quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is full of the reminders that the Lord is God. And more than God, your God. I love that little detail. The Lord is your God. In other words, the creator of the universe, the one who delivered you from the tyrant in Egypt, is for you. It is a word of hope in a world that seems teetering on the brink of despair. Worship the Lord, your God, and serve only him. I also love how Jesus brings it all back to scripture, because the second temptation here is to dismiss things, such as quoting scripture and prayers, as meaningless. We've all seen those who have belittled thoughts and prayers as trivial, and as an excuse to do nothing. Here, Jesus uses scripture, the word of God, to stand up to the devil and the power of evil. So we do the same. We read scripture with new eyes. Yes, we offer prayers. We even play the Ukrainian national anthem as a part of our prelude, trusting the Lord is our God and that the same God who delivered God's people from a tyrant can deliver us from the tyrants of the world. As Martin Luther writes in The Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is probably too happy to play on a Lenten Sunday, let this world's tyrant rage, and battle will engage. His might is doomed to fail. God's judgment must prevail. One little word subdues him. There is one final temptation, and this might be the most personal. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. The devil, clever being, decides to take a page out of Jesus' book, and use scripture against him. Here, the devil is tempting Jesus to believe that if you are the son of God, you should be safe from harm, that nothing bad will happen to you. This is an accusation I've seen leveled against us constantly. We've all heard it. We've probably internalized it in some way, shape or form. As Christians, as followers of God, as good people, only good things should come our way. By being good, by following the rules, by following God, we should be exempt from the hardships of life, from harm. This is the thing we want to believe the most. As I said before, the devil is called the father of lies. And this is the lie that we want to believe more than anything. We want God in life on our terms. We want God to bend to our rules and our tests. And if we do believe this lie, it will often be the thing that brings us to our breaking point, or even breaks us. There are several ironies here beside the devil trying to use the word against the word made flesh. First of all, If any of you have ever taken a class with me before, whether as a confirmation or high school youth or adult, you know the importance that I put on reading the scripture in context. Context, context, context. Here the devil is using the scripture out of context. The part of the quote comes from Psalm 91, which as you read that Psalm as a whole does not exempt the writer from bad things happening around them the writer compares god to a refuge and a fortress and you don't need a refuge in a fortress unless you are being attacked unless you are being surrounded by forces outside you and hilariously the next verse the devil does not quote in the psalm actually speaks to the devil's own demise it says you will tread on the lion and the adder that is snake the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Serpent is almost always used as an allusion to the evil one opposed to God. As those of you who have heard me teach before also know, the serpent in the garden is not specifically listed as the devil or Satan, but is recognized to be that same malevolent force. So the devil manages to pick the same psalm that speaks to the devil's own oncoming defeat. Jesus' own response comes from Deuteronomy 6 again. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Through this, Jesus passes the test that we cannot. But Jesus isn't just here to pass the test. He is here to free us from the test, to get rid of the test entirely. Jesus came to bring hope to our despair, to give us the bread of forgiveness through his very body and blood. Harm will come to the Son of God. The very last verse, and the devil waited for an opportune time. Just as we are not exempt from harm and pain and suffering, the Son of God will not be exempt from harm and pain and suffering. And the devil's defeat will come when the devil thinks that he has won. Jesus' feet are dashed with nails as are his hands, Jesus dies on the cross. But it is on that same cross that we find forgiveness. Forgiveness for all those times when we've given in to the temptation to doubt, the temptation to despair, the temptation to test God, the temptation to believe the father of lies. As I was putting this sermon together, I was reminded of a viral video from this past summer. It was from America's Got Talent, which I don't watch, but enough of my friends that I trust posted it that I went, I should watch this, and I recently rewatched it. Jane, or Nightbird as she goes by her singing uh, personality, captivated the judges and the audience and then the world as she came on the show with a song and a very serious some very serious cancer. Her song, It's Okay, spoke to the wonderful hope and beauty and also her gift for writing. Seriously, if you haven't watched it, when we're done with the service here, pull it up on your phones and watch it. And after that, go and find her website and her blog entry from almost exactly a year ago called God is on the Bathroom Floor. If my sermon, Weren't too long already, and we didn't have Communion Sunday, and if I didn't think Facebook and our live stream would flag me for plagiarism and take me off the air, I'd read the entire entry. It's that good. In this post, she outlines part of her cancer story, her suffering, her arguing with God, when there was nothing left to do but scream and sob on the bathroom floor. She, too, knows the line about harm, deeply, personally. Her final two lines from this post have stuck with me. She writes, I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. In this is a recognition that we have a God who understands us deeply and intimately. God, too, has felt our fear our doubt, our hunger, our pain, our harm, through Jesus, fully God, yes, and fully human. God is on the bathroom floor through Jesus. We can be confident of this through the temptation story. God knows the bathroom floors where we have waged these wars with the devil too, sometimes winning, more often than not, losing. But through the cross, God does not lead us, leave us on the bathroom floors. One of the reasons I pulled this video up again this past week is because um, news had started to spread about a week or two ago that Jane had died of cancer. And I was reminded that God is on the bathroom floor and God is in the dirt of our grave, pulling us out into new life through Christ through the resurrection as well. God is on the bathroom floor and God is in our grave raising us to new life day and day over and over again. And so we remember that as I finish with the final verse from A Mighty Fortress. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foes who fear it. For God himself fights by our side with weapons of the spirit Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though life be wrenched away, they cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. Amen.